So hey everyone, I'm Elena. I'm Soshi. And today we're going to be talking about another Houston case. And me and my messed up head, I am actually really excited to talk about this case because um, I hadn't heard about this story before. Um, quick thank you to ABC.com, uh, the Houston Chronicle, and the amazing book, Never See Them Again by M. William Phelps, uh, that helped me with the research of this case. So I just want to put that at the very forefront so that we can continue with the podcast. Uh, the story is about a teenage girl who killed her best friend in cold blood over jealousy, or so they say. This is the case of Christine Pale Lilla, otherwise known as the Clear Lake Massacre. So grab your coffee and settle in because we have a latte crime to cover. Because <laughs> you already know we have our coffee. <laughs> So Christine Paolilla was born on March 31st, 1986 in Long Island, New York. Christine, from the beginning, had a pretty rough start to her life. Her dad died in a construction accident when she was two years old. Her mom had a lot of drug problems. In an interview, she stated that after her husband died in the construction accident, she didn't know how to cope and that dealing with two children on her own was just too much for her to handle. So drugs were pretty much her way of coping with that and in a way uh, to numb her pain over the loss of her husband. Lori, that's Christine's mom's name, she loses her two children to her parents. And when Christine was just a toddler, her grandparents also passed away. Christine is given back to her mom, as I understood it. Before this, though, Christine does bounce around from foster home to foster home before given back to her mom about a decade later. So she doesn't go automatically back to her mom. She does bounce around foster homes. Um, but by this time, Christine's mom is remarried. She's committed to her sobriety. So again, she's doing good. She's gotten a lot better. She has a healthy relationship with the man that she remarries to. Christine at the time was a short and not very confident girl. Uh, very, very early in her life, around age five, Christine ends up being diagnosed with alopecia. So alopecia is a disease that causes someone to lose all of their hair which if you can imagine for a teenage girl, it can be pretty detrimental to self-esteem to, self to a, a young girl growing up. When you're a teenager, all you care about is your appearance, right? What makeup you're going to use, how you're going to do your hair the next day, or what clothes you're going to wear. At the time, she's obviously going to school. She uh, Kids are mean. Kids can be really mean. And so they bully her. They call her names. They're just not very nice. So as she's losing her hair... Uh, she loses her eyebrows. She loses her eyelashes. She started wearing wigs because of it. And kids would bully her because of that. They would actually snatch her wig off, make fun of her during her elementary and middle school years. So because of that, Christine didn't have very many friends, if any at all. So her whole upbringing was kind of just like a lonely place for her. Her mom did know about this, and she states that it was very painful to watch and couldn't even really imagine what Christine was feeling or the thoughts that would go through her mind. Christine even had really bad vision uh, because of the alopecia, so she would have to wear these really thick Coke bottle glasses. Again, oh not very 
good for her self-esteem. But this only added to the constant bullying. Well, when she got to high school, on top of wearing wigs, she would paint her eyebrows on, and this sort of just added to the ridicule. She was considered very unattractive, and the way that she painted on her eyebrows and overdid her makeup would make her look like a clown. And so that's how people described her, like, there goes the clown girl. It wasn't meant to be in a bad way, but it was the way that she looked that people, that's why people said that, like that she looked like a clown. So, I mean, anytime somebody says somebody looks like a clown or resembles a clown, I mean, it's not going to be taken in a positive connotation ever. Again, you know, same cycle kind of repeating itself in high school. We're going to switch gears a little bit. Now we're going to talk a little bit about Rachel and Tiffany. So those two girls are the, friend, are the girls that befriend uh, Christine in high school. The two girls, they worked at Exotica, which I don't know if you actually remember that, but Exotica used to be like a, a dance, like I guess now it's Paradise before it used to be Exotica. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's the same place or whatever, but it was like... So when they were in high school, they worked at Exotica? Yeah. So like that was my first... Wow. Yeah, that was my first take. Like, what are they doing working at Exotica? Yeah. But contrary to popular belief, the girls were not dancers. They were, they were they, waitresses. Yeah. Oh, my so gosh. So they only waitress there, but still they weren't around the best people and took up using drugs as well, so, mostly because of the people that they hung around with. Right. So pause. Just to kind of back up, um, Exotica, or what Yelena referred to as Paradise, mm-hmm. is a strip club. Yes. Um, a very, I don't know if it's a popular strip club, but it's a very known because it's right off of a main highway or yeah. freeway here in Texas, or mm-hmm. here in Houston. It's 45 45 I guess going south right um so yeah high school girls working at a strip club right off of the freeway that's Mm -hmm. not a very safe uh, place to work (laughs) so I don't remember exactly where Exotica was but I do remember hearing about Exotica growing up yeah I remember the name I just don't remember where where it's at yeah so when I saw that I was just like oh wow I hadn't heard of that in a really long time honestly I don't even know if it still exists to this at this point but probably not or probably it's named something else I don't know Anyways, but Rachel, one of the one of the girls, was described by her father, uh, George Colarudis, as being a very laid back child, and that in her teens she was kind hearted like her mother, stubborn like her father. She loved the color purple. She loved drawing, and she loved playing with dolls. She was very close to her sister Lila. They were part of their church and believed giving back was a must because they were very blessed. They weren't hurting for money and lived pretty well off. So Rachel became involved in the youth group. She loved true crime. She wanted to get into law enforcement because of it. Everyone pretty much agreed that she was very soft-spoken, very kind-hearted, and just like any other young teen, went through her awkward stage of growing up. But when she got over that little stage, she was a beautiful girl. And she really was. I mean, you see the pictures, and they were really pretty girls. She was dating an older boy. She seemed happy. She was responsible in her home life, and when she got to high school, just like any other teenager, she liked to party. Although she was a responsible girl at home, she also had her teen life with her friends, and this this is how and when she meets the other people that she partied with. Uh, Rachel developed an acne problem and took prescription drugs for it. One of the side effects were mood swings. Her father, George, didn't blame the drug for her risky behavior, but he thought it could be a reason for how she started to become like a little bit more rebellious, I guess, as she got a little bit older. Uh, Rachel's parents were pretty strict, and after high school, she wanted to move in with Tiffany. So her and Tiffany had plans to move in together after high school. 
Rachel met Tiffany Rao, which is the other friend, at Clear Lake High School, and they became pretty good friends right away. They were very pretty, again, like I've said. All the boys wanted to date them, and all the girls wanted to be them type of thing. So just like in high school when you see the pretty popular girl, right? It was that kind of thing. And according to friends, though, they were super approachable girls. Very nice. They weren't stuck up. They weren't ugly to people. They were very well liked. They were kind to everyone. It it didn't matter who they were. Tiffany, on the other hand, she had dreams of going into social work. Tiffany's mother had unfortunately died shortly before Rachel met her, so she was going through a tough time, and Rachel, I think, helped her get through this time. Uh, Rachel does end up living with Tiffany, and although her mother and her didn't look eye to eye, she still talked to her mom and told her about her life. She had rebelled a lot, and I think her parents felt that she was just trying to go a little while since they had always been very strict as well. So Rachel ends up telling her mom about a girl that they had befriended and that was picked on and bullied. That's Christine. So they do, they do meet her at Clear Lake High School. They become friends with her. Uh, She tells her mom that her and Tiffany felt sorry for her and that they didn't like that people made fun of her. They approach her and when they become friends, they start helping her out. They go with Christine to pick out wigs. Um, They help her with her makeup. They help pick out new clothes. Not long after Christine starts to make friends with them or becomes friends with them, her appearance completely changes. Mm -hmm. At this point, Christine is pretty much a whole new person. People barely recognized her or even realized she suffered from alopecia. Uh, Christine had completely transformed from being this awkward, quote-unquote, ugly girl to even being voted Miss Irresistible that same year. Wow. So these girls completely changed Christine's life. Yeah. They, they, they're they not malicious at all. They, like, legit become friends with her. Yeah, and the, the crazy thing is that it's, it's more so the confidence that they have within themselves, you know, in order for – I mean, can you imagine high school teenage girls that are just friendly with everyone who are beautiful, right? People that you would – mostly thing are maybe unapproachable Mm -hmm. are now you know befriending this girl who's been bullied who's gone through pretty much the most horrific things Mm -hmm. you can think about as a high schooler and now they've passed their confidence over to her I mean that's simply what's happening right because she still has the same disease it's just a matter of how she feels and how comfortable she is in her own yeah that is and so yeah I mean these girls now she's befriended these girls who are working at an exotic dancing place Uh of course they know where to find the best exactly Exactly. so with that being said the girls they grow very close together rachel was actually a little bit more closer to her than tiffany was and some even speculated that she and christine were actually romantically involved now we i don't know if that's necessarily true but people did speculate that aside from that these girls were pretty much christine's rock i mean they were really there for her they were really there for each other this was a very genuine friendship and christine really became dependent on these girls from christine having a really tough childhood and losing her dad losing her grandparents and in a sense losing her mom these girls were pretty much her constant Christine, though, she was a year younger than the girls. That year, Tiffany and Rachel, they do graduate. And so naturally, they lose touch with Christine. And this happens, right? It's normal. When I left high school, I lost touch with a lot of people. Now, fortunately for us, we have social media. So, you know, it's easier to see what everyone's up to. We keep in touch, but I'm not super close to them, right? Nobody is. I mean, I probably stay in touch with maybe 
two, three people, like, (laughs) and we talk, you know, we hang out every so often. Now it's just easier to see what everyone's up to with social media versus back then you had to wait to like the 10 year reunion, you know, to kind of figure out what was happening with people. After the girls graduate, uh, Christine kind of lost interest in school. She was considered a wild teen, meaning she drank, had sex, smoked weed, later smoked dope, later became a drug addict. So I guess once she lost touch with the girls, she kind of lost touch with herself and just kind of fell into the wrong group of people, I guess. Christine said that she gravitated towards the bad boys because she wanted to fix them. The idea being that she couldn't fix herself, so she took these boyfriends on as projects. In junior high, she met a guy... And the kid was said to be aggressive and mean to her, but that he made her feel special. And his name was Chris Snyder. She said Chris, even though made her feel special, would get physical with her and that she was afraid of him at times. Like a classic abuse, abusive relationship. Christina's very young at this age. She's 17 going on 18 because she's in her senior year of high school. Mm -hmm. She's been bullied all her life. She doesn't have any friends. The two friends that she did have naturally lost touch with her. She has daddy issues because her dad died very young. She doesn't have friends. So of course she's going to kind of hold on to somebody or something that's going to make her something feel constant. Yeah. So did feel she good about herself. him in junior high or yeah. she met him in, in high school? No, she made him in junior high. Okay. So and they continued their relationship through high school. Yeah. Yes. So he comes and goes. For some reason or another, they do fall off in junior high and it's not until the summer the summer of 2003 that she sees him and reconnects and falls for him all over again. Now, Chris is four years her senior. He's 21 at the time. He was notorious for his criminal activity around Clear Lake. So again, this is not some nice guy. And disclosure, once again, this is our third podcast Mm -hmm. and it's in Clear Lake. You guys, I grew up in Clear Lake. I promise you that there are normal people that come out of Clear Lake. It seems like all of our stories are like, these criminals from Clear Lake, yeah. Texas, or Clear Lake, Houston, however you want to say it, but that's that's crazy. I guess stay away from Clear Lake, I maybe. know. <laughs> but anyway, so I believe when uh, Chris and Christine reconnect, Chris had actually just gone out of jail. When they reconnect, Christine falls pretty hard for him, and Chris is still kind of the same old Chris. He's still a a very aggressive person, but she kind of keeps the relationship going. Uh, She again becomes very dependent on him. She and Chris were actually booked with a shoplifting charge together, but ultimately uh, the case was dismissed. Her parents obviously did not agree with her life choices or her boyfriend because again like her mom is in a really good place with her remarried husband they really want what's best for christine but at this point christine's kind of just fallen off so they forbid her from seeing chris and doing what they can to keep her away from him but she's still very much enamored with him that she's really not listening to her parents and by december of 2003 police were showing up regularly at christine's house She was pissed that her parents wanted her away from Chris, but Christine, again, being enthralled with him, pretty much keeps the relationship going. And at this point... She doesn't really care. Just like any typical 17-year-old who's rebellious mm -hmm. towards her parents, you know, you're going to do the complete opposite of what your parents want you to do. So she's going to fight it to the end. Yep. And at this point, he just really had a very strong mental hold on her that she wasn't really seeing any reason... Uh, when it came to him and so she was at the time 16 going on 17 and there wasn't much that her parents could do but 
this guy was a real piece of shit. Uh, I, I even read that at one point he even went to go hang out with her at school and that when she was talking to her friend, she snatched her wig off and laughed at her. He snatched her wig off? Yeah. And so she, he snatches the wig off from her and she sort of, and she sort of just like looks at him and laughs it off. Like that's how much she like was so oh, entranced by him. Oh my god! Yeah. Can you imagine like you're finally kind of getting that over and then he comes and snatches your wig off? Like what a Dick. Okay, so, like, again, it's, like, your safe space, right? So, like, these girls made her feel safe, confident, you know, around them. She was a totally different person. Mm-hmm. Now, this person that she you're supposed to be able to trust, right? You have full confidence that this person is, like, your person, mm-hmm. and they're, like, humiliating you, mm-hmm. and you're just taking it. Mm-hmm. That is insane. But on the flip side, she also wasn't, like, this meek, nice girl either, So articles state that she would sleep in front of Chris's house's yard. So she was like a super jealous person that at times, like if he wouldn't do crazy things, she would do crazy things. Yeah. Yeah. She would yell for him so that in front of his house, house, um, because her parents or his sister, I believe wouldn't let her in the house because they're like, no, like he doesn't want to see you. And she would just like camp out in their front yard. Uh, she oh was, yeah, so she was insanely jealous and at one point even licked his face when she noticed another girl looking at him. Like people witnessed this. Oh my That's God. How, yeah. So she's not like the, this yeah. like meek girl, right? Like shy, you know? Yeah. So she's pretty gross, but you know, moving on. So that was like the palate cleanser. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to give you a background on the girls. I think it's important to highlight Rachel and Tiffany. I think it's important to kind of see the background of where Christina was at in her life with Chris after the girls left mm-hmm. palate cleanser. But now I am going to go into the details of the murders of these teens first before delving into the rest of the case. So remember, I know we've talked about the girls and Christine a lot, but there was also two male murder victims as well. Uh, on the unfateful day of July 18, 2003, Christine and Chris enter Tiffany Rao's home and kill Tiffany Rao, Rachel Colarudis, both 18, Marcus Ray Priscilla, Rao's 19-year-old boyfriend, so this was Tiffany's boyfriend, and Adelbert Nicholas Sanchez, Priscilla's 21-year-old cousin. Uh, we know this now, but at the time, no one knew who had killed these teens. Mm-hmm. So at the point, at this point in time, we didn't know that it was Chris and Christina yeah, that no killed wonder, them. No wonder, because you said in, in December of 2003. So they were still free in December of 2003. Mm-hmm. Even though this murder occurred in July Mm -hmm. of 2003? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So Adelbert Sanchez, according to the medical examiner, was killed by multiple gunshots. The wounds pierced the middle of his forehead. Another hit his neck. Two gunshots were found in his torso and another into his left shoulder. Marcus Ray Priscilla, the other male victim, was shot in the head, stomach, right forearm, and right shoulder, and a bullet wound grazed across his chest. It also appeared that he had been beaten as well. Blunt force head injuries, according to the coroner. He had abrasions on his temple and five lacerations on the back of his head. There was also a star-shaped pattern of blowback, which was gunpowder from Marcus's killer holding the gun to his head and firing. So very... Oh my gosh, execution type mm-hmm. of murder. Mm-hmm. Very oh execution, gosh. very, very uh, violent. Rachel had been beaten the worst because of all the lacerations, abrasions, and blows she had to her school. On top of being shot in the lower abdomen, directly in the vagina, 
five rounds to her thigh, three to her left shin, and one to her right foot. Even one on her right buttock, which was a clue that she was actually trying to run away. Bruises to her left hand were telling in that she was fighting back, which meant that she was alive when she was beaten to death. She also had a clump of her hair in her hand, which was on par with her covering her face from when she was being pistol whipped. While at the crime scene, they also say that they found blood on an AC vent on the ceiling, which was consistent with Rachel's blood, meaning that someone had repeatedly hit her in the back of her head. In front of her was a cell phone, and her hand was stretched out as if she was reaching for it when she died. A detective later said that it seemed that Rachel had put up her hands to protect herself even after being shot multiple times. Tiffany had a bullet wound straight to her forehead, bullet hole in her chin, left cheek, left shoulder, lower left abdomen, a bullet left of her vagina, right knee, leg, and shin. They had valuables in the house. They had jewelry. I say that word really funny, so please don't come for me. Uh, in the house so it didn't look like a burglary so right away the police officers could tell that it was like you said an execution type of killing there were two different caliber weapons so the thought was that there was either one killer that had brought two weapons which means he or she knew there was going to be a lot of people at the house or there had been two shooters which also meant that the killers knew that they would be there There was blood everywhere, there were bullet holes everywhere, and things were thrown around, meaning that there was a struggle, or at least looked like there was a struggle. Tiffany and Marcus were found sitting, so that led Tom Ladd, the investigator of the case, to believe that this was done rather quickly because it's as if they were watching TV. He also believed that Rachel Colorudis opened the door and let the person in, turns, begins to walk back to where she was going, and was then shot. And then Marcus and Tiffany were shot next, which means that there were two shooters. So the way that the crime scene was set up, right, that there had to be more than one shooter. Police realized that the most they could do is just search for any trace evidence left by the killer. Anything that could help them because the shooter had disappeared very quickly. This happened in the middle of the day and no one had seen anything. The shooter or shooters had pretty much just vanished. Because of the lack of evidence found or any trace of the shooter, detectives knew that this was going to be really hard to figure out and that it would be years before anything came of this. It took three years before any suspects would be brought in. The murder victims... Three years? mm -hmm, Three years. And we'll get into the specifics. So right now I'm kind of just going through the the findings at the very beginning and, and we'll get into it. Uh, the murder victims were into drugs, and Tiffany and Rachel had started to work at Exotica, like I mentioned earlier. Investigators wanted to be very thorough and were looking into all possible theories. Some of the theories were, since the girls worked at Exotica, that maybe a regular developed an obsession and that it just escalated into murder, as it almost always does. We've heard that in many of the true crime podcasts that we've heard of, mm-hmm. and that the boys were just collateral damage. The main theory, though, for a long time was that it was drug-related because these teens were known to not only do drugs, but also sell. Specifically Marcus, because he was known to deal cocaine and ecstasy. Now, because Tiffany lived alone, most of his dealing was from her house. His cousin Adelbert, excuse me, known as D, also dabbled in the dealing. So this house was Tiffany's house. Tiffany lived there by herself. Uh, Her parents, I believe, traveled like a whole bunch and they weren't there very often. 
And when they moved out of the house, they went to go live somewhere else. Tiffany didn't want to leave. So they told her, fine, like you can stay here. So her house kind of became like the party house. Right, so everybody would just kind of go chill, eat, drink, do drugs, right. and then Things leave. that they won't do at right. home with their parents. Right. <laughs> and they came in and out. Like this happened like at all hours of the day and night. Of course. Okay. Mm-hmm. Another theory, and before I get into another theory, there was a lot of theories. I actually had to uh, cut out a lot of the things because a lot of this stuff came from the book that I was reading, mm. and it, there's just so many. I mean, there's there's things that I won't even talk about in the podcast because there's just so much. Like, so I do recommend the book if you guys if you guys do want to read or, or research about this case. I would say read the book; it was really good. Another theory was that they had been mistaken for someone else or. What if the boys were the target and the girls just collateral damage? So again, stemming from the theory that it was drug related since the boys were drug dealers. There was a lot that HPD had to consider here because there were no leads from the very beginning or at least not any good ones and that there wasn't much evidence either. So before uh, HPD or the Houston Police Department started getting out of control with theories, which can sometimes be hurtful to an investigation, they decided that they had to slow down if they wanted to do a good job at catching their killer or killers. So again, they didn't want to start just kind of speculating because there wasn't any evidence, there wasn't witnesses, so they really wanted to do a good like canvassing before they kind of just ran with it. Now, um, I did mention him a little earlier, but Detective Tom Ladd, he was a very seasoned cop. Uh, he is the one that took over this investigation, and he is described as being a very Western man with an accent and a great police officer. So very cliche. When I read this, I was just like, man, that just looks like those old-timey like yeah. sheriffs in a small <laughs> town type deal. I just see a man with Wranglers, a cowboy hat, and a toothpick in his mouth, pretty much. <laughs> just like everyone when they think of police, police. officers or, uh, what is it called, um, homicide detectives yeah. here in Texas. Yes, yeah, right, with his Wrangler boots or right. his cowboy boots, yeah. And he worked in Third Ward. So again, not an easy neighborhood. If you're from Houston or if you know Houston, you know that Third Ward is not the best place. He was very methodical and people either liked him or hated him. Some called him a bigot and a racist. He was a part of the railroad killer investigation, which I believe we're going to yeah, do that case like next. A, um, what is it called when you're like prefacing yeah which is like hint hint yeah so that was pretty cool when i read that i was just like oh that's awesome because that's gonna somehow all of our cases have so far tied in somewhere right yeah just because they're i mean they're all from good lakes yeah true (laughs) (laughs) he and his brother were who was also a detective were part of the carl eugene watts case also dubbed as the sunday morning slasher so in layman terms he was an asshole but a badass But okay, back to the case. So Tom Ladd walks in with everyone going through the scene and gets the details of what's happening. He said he got four bodies, gunshot wounds, people who had come into the house, people around the neighborhood that may or may not have seen something. He thought a drug bust gone bad, but nonetheless walked through the scene and asked questions. He walked in, saw the the shell casings. He looked at the bodies uh, and mostly silently observed. So again, very methodical in his way of going about it. By the end of the night, the canvassing of the neighborhood did turn up two witnesses that thought that they saw two people earlier in the day. They were interviewed and recalled the day pretty well. The couple was at home from vacation and around 3.15, they give their statement that they see two people outside their bedroom window dressed in black 
Now, this was weird to the police officers because it's Houston. So if anybody knows Houston in July, (laughs) you know, it's really hot. hot. If you're walking around in black, some people are going to notice like, like I'm hot for them kind of deal. They uh, tell investigators that the people stopped by Tiffany's car, which was parked outside, and that they kept looking at them because he thought, the man thought that they were going to burglarize the truck, so he kind of kept an eye on them. Michelle, one of the witnesses, says that she saw a white girl, thought she was cute, that she had blonde hair, fair skin, 5'7", 115 to 120 pounds. This was really good because police could work with this, right? They had an ID of the girl that they saw going into the house. She noticed that she what she was wearing as well, and the couple is also able to ID the guy and said that he had sandy blonde hair, fair complexion, and shorter than the female. Guessed their ages between 18 and 20 and had never seen them before. Now, once they entered the home, they stopped caring because they went inside. Obviously, like if you're going inside the house, why would you be? Yeah, like you just like, okay, they went inside. Obviously, they know these people moving on. They sat with a sketch artist and these sketches get logged into evidence. Now we're going to come back to that. And I thought this was perfect. I was like, man, when I was reading this part of the book and reading the articles with them talking about these witnesses, I was like, that's really good, right? Yeah, they're going to find them pretty quick. So by this time, it had already been on the news. Families were called. George and his family were basically waiting outside of the house. So Tiffany Rouse house waiting to be told if their daughter was in there or not. They didn't get ID'd until like the very end of the night. So his dad was literally waiting outside of that house for like six or seven hours. They had not ID'd the victims yet. So when the coroners finally come out with the body bags is when they pretty much get confirmation that one of the victims was in fact their daughter. Adelbert, one of the victims had a sister. Although they weren't super affectionate with each other, Nona, her name is Nicole, but her nickname again is Nona, said that on the days before the murders, she told her brother to be careful, that something told her to say that to him, and that he kind of just brushed her off, didn't really, you know, think anything of it. You know, he tells her that he's always careful. She said that he saw she was a little bit off with her day. So he kind of goes, hugs her, gives her a kiss, tells her that he would be careful. And uh, that's pretty much the last time she sees her brother. Now, Nicole or Nona also said that uh, he was very fashionable. That this guy was super fashionable. He was very into music because he had dreams of being a rapper. And that he was a pretty good one as well. Now, that's like a Houston thing, right? We have a lot of rappers here in Houston. He was even getting a demo. Uh, A music producer had even showed interest in his music. So this isn't just like her opinion. Like, he was a pretty good rapper, apparently. Uh, That he was very nice. And that he always had a different girl. So he was, you know, a good rapper and a ladies' man, apparently. Uh, She goes on to say that when the news broke out in the news outlets, that at first they didn't even think it was a Delbert because they didn't know what Tiffany's house looked like. By this time, I believe Nona hadn't spoken to her brother over the course of a few days, but that it wasn't all that weird. Again, they weren't super close. They would go a few days without talking. Delbert wouldn't always come back home. He wouldn't always call. He wouldn't always come home, so it wasn't all that alarming. But when all of this is breaking out, she just sensed that something wasn't right. And so later that day, she gets a call from her aunt saying that Dee had been shot. So she, at this point, is thinking that he's still alive because all she said that was that he was shot. She starts asking questions like, is he okay? Like, where is he? What hospital is he at? And then pretty much that's when her aunt tells her, like, no, he's been shot and killed. 
There are many cases that follow the path that this case was taking in that a lot of leads were coming in, but nothing with real substance. A lot of people wanted to be a part of the investigation or wanted to insert themselves into the investigation, and this really made it difficult and frustrating for the investigators. They, of course, followed up with every lead and tip that was given, but it was a lot. They interviewed over 200 people in this case, and so many names were thrown out to the investigation that they really just muddled everything up. So everyone they talked to just kept throwing out names. They were being overwhelmed, and because people wanted to be a part of the story or a part of the investigation, they were kind of just chasing bunny trails with nothing really to show for. Again, the book that I read, it goes kind of deeper into all of the, the tips that came in. So if you want to read the book, go ahead. I just, there, there was a lot that I even got confused at some points because I had originally put them in like to my show notes, but then I was like, this has nothing to do with the case. Like it just ends up being so many random people. Yeah. Like it just, like, I mean, it goes into where like the investigators were even going to jails because there was people in jail that were like, Oh, I heard about this person or I heard about that person or this drug dealer knew a Delbert or this drug dealer knew. I mean, it even got into like gang related stuff. It got into like cartel stuff and then it ends up being nothing. So they waste all of these resources. resources, Yeah. On things that just because people wanted like 10 minutes of fame or just wanted to like mess with the investigators. So I think that's one of the reasons why it also took a really long time for them to get any, initial leads like you said that's what happens a lot of the time now tom lab the investigator he did keep running uh running down the leads he stayed pretty consistent he didn't want uh the lack of resources to stop him but unfortunately there was a lack of resources so the investigation starts to run cold pretty quickly and just like you would expect a parent to george colorudis he really stayed on top of this case he was very determined to catch his daughter's killer and tom ladd knew this so he was all over the investigation from the very beginning george was one of those guys who needed to be involved it helped him cope with the loss and it also pressured uh, the houston police to solve this case tom would later say that he was a pain in the ass but without him he was sure that the case would probably not have been solved By this time, it was coming up on springtime of the next year, and Ladd was going to be retiring soon, and another young detective in the police department would eventually start taking on the case. So this young detective, his name is Brian Harris, and Brian Harris had a fresh set of eyes to bring to the investigation. Tom liked him. He knew that he would really work the case, and so Brian Harris after this really delves into the case. So from what I had read, even though Ladd was going to be retiring and then gets another posting, Brian was already in place, but he didn't want to like overstep like his boundaries. Mm -hmm. So he was like, I'm going to stay in the back until Ladd tells me like, it's okay. In this meantime, Brian Harris starts to go through all of the evidence of the case. And he starts going through all the boxes, kind of like old detective style Everyone had already said that Tom Ladd was very methodical, but then when Brian Harris enters, he, he, and he always said, Brian Harris always said that he didn't take anything away from Tom Ladd. Like Tom Ladd did an amazing job at what he did, like following leads, chasing all the leads, chasing all the tips, but there was so much missed with evidence or if the evidence got collected, nobody did anything with the evidence. That's also another reason why I feel like the case wasn't solved because maybe it was the lack of resources, but nobody checked evidence the way that they should have been 
checked, I guess. He finds this picture of the two girls with the third girl and wonders why no one looked for the girl in the picture. He read the reports. He really immersed himself into the case so that he could see it through his own eyes and expertise versus anybody telling him what to expect of the case. And right away, two names catch his attention, which is Michelle and Craig Lackner. Now, they're the ones from earlier that saw the two people from their window. So Michelle and Craig are the couple that see the two kids in black that were around the truck, and then they go inside of the house. And he wondered why no one ever followed up on that lead either. It's kind of like they took the interview, they got their evidence, they logged it, and then it was forgotten. So he kind of keeps that in the back of his mind. He sees that nobody did anything with the statement. The, the sketches had never been released to the public. Uh, he even read a report on another witness named Nancy that had heard gunshots and even gave an exact time of when this was happening. The report said she heard gunshots at about 3.17 p.m., the other couple said that they saw these people around 3.15 p.m. And again, he knew that this was crucial information to the case, but no one had done anything about it. Harris wanted Michelle and Craig to come pick out possible suspects out of a photo lineup, but he also knew that he had to come up with suspects that would be able to stick. So he kind of put them in his back pocket and then kind of kept going with his research on the case. So we'll come back to them later on again. Gosh. Yeah. Uh, while he was delving into the case, Harris also finds out that Rachel Colorudis had actually called 911 at 3.14 p.m. So he was starting to get a timeline together, you know, while doing this research. So, so do you think that she saw them? Okay, so if the other couple is saying that she that they saw them at 3.15, do you think maybe Rachel saw them drive up to the house? Well, we'll get into it. So uh, he wondered, uh, Brian Harris wonders why Tom and his partner at the time didn't do anything with the information. Uh, he actually does go and ask them about the sketches and why they were never released to the public. Tom said that he didn't release the sketch because he thought that the couple were remembering something from the previous day. Now, I don't know why he would think that they were remembering something from the previous day. I don't think that's a really good explanation, but that's the explanation that they give. That, he, that Tom gives. Some people say that they overlooked it, but regardless, Harris was just going to use this to help him solve the case. Harris even asked Tom Ladd's partner why the sketches hadn't been released, and Phil, which is Tom Ladd's partner, uh, he says he didn't know why and told him that they just didn't do it. So because he saw these inconsistencies in the case or in the evidence, he, uh, Brian Harris talks to a man that also entered the investigation about a year after the murders and told him that he wanted to go back 48 hours on phone records, call logs, and re-interview people because he knew and realized that some things had been overlooked. During this time, George and Anne, which is George Colorudis' wife, they focused their life on finding their daughter's killer. George Colorudis even started a memorial fund and put out a reward for anyone coming forward with any information. And now, as Harris settled in with the case, there was now a big sense of urgency to solve this case. But even with all the urgency, another two years would pass before they got any closer to finding their killer. Harris was still learning about the case, going over it with a fine-tooth comb because he didn't want something to be overlooked again. He was going through endless interviews and hundreds of people that at one point had been mentioned, had been brought into the investigation for one reason or another. He was very determined and was very thorough, and even though some things, some important things had gone overlooked, he in the grand scheme of things was grateful that a lot of this case had not been overlooked, and that even with a two-man team, 
Tom Nan and his partner had done a great job with the case on top of all of their other cases and workloads. So Harris decided to break down the case in a very cohesive way so that anyone else that came into the case would be able to know very quickly what was going on and not overlook anything that might be of real importance, like the third girl in the picture that no one seemed to know, or why the sketches had never been released to the public. And my friends, that is part one. So <laughs> part two will come to you guys very soon. Stay tuned. Thank you.